0: Availability may vary by market. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Greetings and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. And on today's episode, my guest is the amazing Maggie Rose. Have you guys checked out Maggie Rose? She is a phenomenal singer, a phenomenal artist, and she has an incredible story. I'll tell you more about that in just a few minutes. And of course, the full interview is coming. Right up, So stick around for all that. A huge shout out to everyone who entered the ITMB podcast review contest. And the winner is Marley. Thanks, Marley. Thanks for your awesome review. And thanks to all of you who left reviews over at Apple Podcasts. It was great to see all of that feedback. That really puts some gas in my tank to keep the podcast going, which I certainly will. We have lots of fun stuff coming your way in the near future. I couldn't do any of it without my excellent sponsors this season. I've got some amazing sponsors, great brands that I'm so proud to be working with. ArtistWorks is your go-to for online music learning. Are you a musician, a beginner, or maybe a more advanced musician, and you're looking to take your game up a notch? You should really check out ArtistWorks. They have a world-class lineup of faculty, amazing instructors who cover a really wide range of instruments, a really wide range of genres. And when you're signed up at ArtistWorks, you work directly with those teachers to figure out how you can improve. And of course, they have some of the best bluegrass pickers in the world, teaching Brian Sutton, Noam Pikelney, Tony Trishka, Chris Eldridge, Sierra Hull, the list goes on and on. So when you're ready to dig in and really become a better player, check out ArtistWorks.com. Now, my other sponsor this season is a brand that I've been a fan of long before I ever started working with them. Orvis makes some of the best fly rods, reels, lines in the business, and they make much more than super high quality fly fishing gear. They've got apparel and outdoor gear to cover so many of your needs, much of which is made right here in the USA. I had a chance to visit the Orvis factory up in Vermont a few years ago, and my mind was blown. It was just Really cool to see the way things are going down. High quality, handmade stuff that lasts a lifetime. I'm a huge fan of the Helios rods. And I'm also a huge fan of the conservation work that Orvis is doing. Truly leading by example. And this type of work is more important now than ever before. And Orvis is really walking the walk. Giving back and making sure that we look after our number one resource, planet Earth, and I can't thank them enough for that. As many of you know, I'm a huge fly fisherman and conservationist, and I can't stress enough how important it is that we all think about ways that we can give back, that we can contribute to the conservation efforts that are going on around the world in our local communities and a few organizations that I support that I'd love to give a quick shout out to. If you're a fly fisherman, you should be a Trout Unlimited member. And if you're interested in saltwater fly fishing, the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust is another excellent organization that deserves your support. And if you're a steelhead person like I am, make sure you check out Wild Steelheaders United, and the Wild Steelhead Coalition. Those four groups are doing really, really great work, and if you can support them in any way, it will help them achieve some very critical goals. And again, these conservation efforts are incredibly timely, so do me a favor and check them out. All right, as I said earlier, my guest today, Maggie Rose. I did not know Maggie before we jumped on Zoom for this interview, and it was so fascinating. Of course, I listened to a bunch of her music, as I always do, and I was a fan right away. She is a badass singer, and her latest album, Have a Seat, is full of really, really quality songwriting, quality playing. The band is just slamming. And of all the guests I've ever had here on the podcast, I think Maggie's story really stands out. You have to stick around to hear about how her career... Has unfolded. It's a fascinating tale of talent, perseverance, evolution, and ultimately much deserved success once she found her sound and kind of settled in as a powerhouse rock and soul singer songwriter. It's definitely a story of overcoming some major obstacles early in her career, probably most notably that she is a woman trying to navigate a male-dominated industry. Now, Maggie is the authority on this subject, and I'm going to let her tell that story as only she can. One thing I will say is that sometimes it's hard to believe that female artists don't get the respect and opportunities that men do just because there are so many legendary, inspiring, talented women who have created endless amazing music over the years. But, of course, we know this to be true. And hearing Maggie talk about what she was up against early in her career really illustrates much more clearly what some of these challenges can look like. So, again, I'll let Maggie tell that part of the story. One of the other challenges she came up against had to do with the fact that she was a country artist. And country, of course, is a genre that can, well, present some challenges, if you will. Now, country these days is having a resurgence in recent years with artists that really have their own voice and are kind of true to what I consider sort of the older version of country music which was so badass so I'm thinking of like Sturgill Simpson, Margot Price, Tyler Childers, Casey Musgraves, Chris Stapleton and they are repping the brand well but we all know there is also a more commercial corporate side of country where you know radio DJs labels retail outlets etc have this huge influence over what songs and artists rise to the top and in turn make a lot of money there's there's a lot of money to be made in that world and it it seems like it's a music world that's driven primarily by those kind of power players that I just mentioned more so than the artists and the music, and you get a clear sense of this listening to Maggie talk about her experiences in country. But even without that context, if you just check out where the music has been over the last you know, 10, 15 years, it's a music world with very little diversity, very little progression. The lyrical content, oh, it's just like cringeworthy sometimes and the music can feel very formulaic, very contrived. And I have to say, hearing Maggie recount her tale and just kind of thinking about everything that's going on with country, it really gives me a renewed and maybe increased appreciation for our little bluegrass corner of the music cosmos. And of course, we've always got to have some bluegrass coverage here on Inside the Musician's Brain. So here we go with a quick bluegrass appreciation session. (music) Reading band, the banjos, just killing on that. Flatten Scruggs, that's always going to be one of my go-tos, and they are one of the bands that really made me fall in love with this music. So real, so authentic, so badass. It really never lets you down, and that's kind of the fan side of things. As an artist, I especially appreciate the fact that we never feel like we're Playing some commercial game of fitting in, like with a certain sound, impressing DJs, whatever. All that really matters is that you pour your heart and soul into what you're doing, make it yours, give it your all. And, you know, there might not be some shiny pie in the sky upside of radio hits or Budweiser endorsements or whatever, but we make the music that we love that we believe in and ultimately it's the fans reactions that matter and that's that's what you want as an artist and unlike the country world the environment surrounding the bluegrass music business has naturally encouraged an unreal amount of evolution in recent years which is why the music is thriving like never before and of course Bluegrass really is not so little anymore. These days you have Billy Strings out there selling out arenas and bringing countless new fans in from every direction. And while Billy may be the biggest thing in bluegrass and the you know, maybe the best or the clearest representation of this trend, you have so many other awesome bands that are finding a really sustainable long-term type of success, pushing the music forward, and they have these diehard fan bases that will go anywhere to see them, support them no matter what you do. And again, that is just what you want as an artist. And tying this back to the Maggie conversation, we also have some of the most amazing female artists in acoustic music, many of them who've been featured right here on Inside the Musician's Brain. So I'm thinking of Molly Tuttle, Sierra Hull, Sarah Jerose, Sarah Watkins, the list goes on and on, and the music is in very good hands, and all of this was non-existent, or maybe just barely getting started when we formed the String Dusters, but at this point in time, man, the sky is the limit, and the music is about the artists and the fans, not the suits, not the corporations, so amen to that. We love you, Bluegrass Music fans. Keep doing what you do. We have a very, very good thing going here, and I want to mention really quick that if you want to learn more about this, there's a really cool recently released book called High on a Mountain, an oral history of Jamgrass in Colorado by Nick Hutchinson. I wrote the foreword to this book full of amazing interviews and definitely expands outside of just what's going on in Colorado. This just happens to be an epicenter of the music. And one other rec for you, if you want to check out old school country and and what that's all about, because, of course, before this whole trend of commercial country got rolling, country music was one of the most real, heartfelt, and I would say culturally important genres that we've ever had here in the States. Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton. The list is long. Jimmy Rogers, Merle Haggard, Tammy Wynette, Loretta Lynn, Willie Nelson. There are so many more. These were incredible and very, very real artists. It was about the music, very similar to a lot of what I was saying a moment ago about bluegrass. And, of course, they're very intertwined in their history and evolution. If you want to learn more about some great stories and just some of the incredible mojo that surrounded country music check out tales from the tour bus from mike judge it's a series of shorts i think it's on youtube just these amazing hilarious and gritty awesome stories that are very entertaining and take you inside what country used to be all right let's jump ahead now to my interview with maggie rose this was such a good one here we go
1: what are we fighting for don't even know anymore baby aren't you worried we're caught in
0: All right, we're here on Inside the Musician's Brain today, and my guest is fellow Osiris podcaster and general badass Maggie Rose. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. What a lovely intro. I love
0: it. <laughs> well, general badass. Maybe that's too general. I love your music. I'm really a fan, and as I've I, I love
1: your music and your band, and I'm so happy to be in the Osiris family with you.
0: Thank you so much for saying that. And as, as I've said many times in the course of my podcasting, and I'm sure you would agree, one of the coolest things is just how much great music it introduces you to and almost forces you to listen to in preparation for these interviews. I just love to, you know, of course, read interviews and, and bios and things, but I love Have a Seat. What an awesome record. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much, and thanks for taking the time to listen to it and for having one of these conversations with me. I think it's cool to hear you talk with other musicians. It's just a really cool format.
0: It is. It's been enlightening, and it's become such a fun and interesting part of my career, and we're going to talk about that. But I wanted to start out today just by talking about your career trajectory because I think it's really fascinating, I think, what you've got going on right now is just really strong and convincing. And the music area that you've ended up in, you know, you're just this like rock soul powerhouse. And I know that your career didn't necessarily start out there. And a lot <laughs> of things have been said about country music and the place that it occupies in sort of the music world in general. And yeah, I just think that's really fascinating. So take us, Take us through it. I know you had your first record deal years ago in 2009. You've had many, many appearances on the Grand Ole Opry and a lot has changed since then. What's your story? Well, you used
1: two words that I really agree with. Fascinating. <laughs> the trajectory. <laughs> it fascinates me too. Um but then my favorite word that you use for how you described where I am now is convincing. And I think that that's as simple as it is. That's where I had to arrive. Um, Just being myself and and not trying to fit into a format that wasn't going to play enough women on the radio. Or I just always felt like an outsider. And I still am in some ways, but I think that people are celebrating that a lot more. I moved here as a teenager. I was thrown into the country music washing machine so when you say
0: and, uh, Nashville is where you moved as a teenager, correct? Nashville. Yeah, as
1: okay. uh, I just turned 19 and Tommy Matola actually was my liaison to a lot of the people that I was working with in the very beginning of my career. And I'm glad that I met him because it was such a great catalyst for me to actually do the damn thing and move to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that without that groundwork, laid down that I would have been able to convince my family to let me do that. Um, but I worked with some great producers, but it was definitely the music row way of things. We lived and died by the success of our single at Country Radio, and that can be pretty demoralizing. And for an artist or just a human, we all have you know multitudes to who we are. You're trying to promote this one song for a year and... Not exploring how multifaceted we are, and the politics of country music are country radio. Let me specify: are totally whack. They're totally um, inequitous, and even now, the top forty on country radio has three women who are among all those artists. And And what do you? What do you attribute?
0: Sorry to interrupt you, but what do you attribute that to? Like, take us inside that process a little bit. How does how do these songs get picked? what What's going on in this world that delivers us to a place where there's only three out of 40 women represented? You know, three women in the top 40 when we know that there are so many incredible, convincing artists out there. Why is right. that the situation?
1: I would attribute it to tons of of causes, but I think that the system in which country radio researches you know how their audience is consuming these songs is archaic they still do you know call they they call people at their homes and play a shitty recording of a song and say do you like a or b and they will use that data and live by it and i think they also believe this trope that even though country music has a strong demographic of female listeners they buy this bullshit that You know, women don't want to hear other women. I've heard that from programmers in my years on, you know, country radio tours and it's, uh, some, there's a lot of complacency and I know that there are so many talented women who are making country music. There are institutions that I think are trying to give a lot of these women a platform. I'm playing the Opry tonight, actually. And the reason that they've been around for so long, I think, is because they know how to evolve and, look at the scene around them and try and incorporate that into, you know, their long history as an institution. Yeah. Um, and country radio really, I think unlike other genres dictates so much of an artist's success. So I think, you know, you asked me about the trajectory of my career. I'm thankful for, those obstacles because I think it led me to make more interesting music. And I realized, you know, the system is broken. I've already been doing backbends to try and find my little niche in this picture. And it wasn't bringing me the joy that music is bringing me now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so back in the day you signed this record deal and this is so interesting about country radio because I think a lot of listeners here have no idea about this. They know that, there's this process kind of shrouded in mystery a little bit and definitely an old kind of patriarchy running the show. And and also that at the end of all this, it doesn't necessarily lead to things that are good for the arts, the creation of more amazing music. But still, it's right. it's this it's this, right. mys- it's this mysterious thing. So when you were making music back in the day and hadn't necessarily discovered all of these things yet and you were trying to play the country radio game, did you feel like there were people at the record label who really wanted to have a lot of input into what your music sounded like?
1: Yeah, of course. And And how
0: does that manifest?
1: Well, a lot of it kind of goes back to radio. How is this single researching? And, um, you know, I think there were a lot of people around me at my label who really believed in me and my potential and my talent and, you know, they were on my side, but they were also working in this broken system. So right. the pressures of wanting me to succeed and wanting to get the opportunity to do another album with me or release even another single was just as heavy on them as it was on me. You know, maybe it wasn't as big of an extension of who they are as it was for me. But um, and I think we all felt kind of arrested by this system. Yeah, And I moved to Nashville as a teen, even though I probably could have gone to New York or LA because Nashville just seemed like a more wholesome place. And, you know, somewhere where I loved, I'd still love a lot of the sonics of uh, country music. But to me, that was just the most palatable place. And I've discovered it's as ruthless as anywhere else. The business is actually even more uh, ruthless at times because there's that whole oh, bless your heart, kind of doublespeak or passivity. uh, The Southern, the kind of Southern element of it all.
0: Yeah, I know. I felt that when I lived. I was in Nashville for eight years, and that's where the String Dusters got our start. Uh Of course, we were sort of an anomaly from the get-go because we were part of this bluegrass movement. But coming from New York, oh, my God, I always felt like, what is going on here? These people are not shooting me straight. Right, And I can see what you're saying, It it probably colors not just everyday life, but also business, the music business. And it's so interesting to hear you say that you felt like your hands were tied and you maybe felt like the people at the label felt like their hands were tied too. And when you're in a situation like that, you start to wonder, whoa, what can really be done about this?
1: And music felt, my attitude toward music today is, so healthy i'm i'm you know i had a guitar lesson this morning and i was talking to my teacher just about how i love that i'm still just so curious and i i know that there's so much more left to do i didn't feel that way about music i felt like this impending doom when i was releasing songs to country radio because every monday those reports would come in and that would Determine what kind of week I was going to have. And the reports like just that showed everything.
0: The reports showed how many ads you had to radio, right. how much your stuff was getting played. Okay. So yes. where, did, where did all this go? Like what changed? When did you realize this isn't working? I got to do something different.
1: I had a single out at country radio that I was reluctant to even release, but it kind of put me in the middle of like this whole bro country conversation. It was after a radio programmer named Keith Hill described country music as a salad and said, women are the tomatoes in our salad. The lettuce is, you know, the Luke Bryans of the world saying that we should use us sparingly. And he said this and it was printed and it was, you know, something that I think radio programmers have been saying behind closed doors for years, but you know, he, he thought it was a good analogy and it, busted open this whole conversation that we now call Tomato Gate in Nashville. And it lit a fire under a lot of people's asses. You know, we have... I bet. uh, Women in music and um, changed the conversation. And it it definitely um, activated a lot of people. But the single that I had out at radio was sort of touching on a little bit of the bro country subjects. And i my label folded while i had this song out and it was not one that i really wanted to release and then the label went away and everything that i had known about the structure around me just evaporated overnight seemingly and i realized i was still here and i still wanted to be here and yeah. it it took those shackles not to sound dramatic off of me um where I, I loved a lot of the people I was working with, but I did not have to uh, conform to that process anymore. And I just wrote relentlessly for two years. And I was writing pop songs and R&B and just like kind of going crazy, figuring out what my voice was, asking questions that I should have asked when I was 18 and thinking about moving to Nashville, but never got the opportunity to. Because I was told, you know, this is how things are done. And... All of our success depends on you behaving and, and following this format, and I didn't have to do that anymore.
0: <laughs> so all of a sudden, you're, you're right. It was so fascinating because it's just amazing how sometimes things that in the moment look like a catastrophe can end. Oh my up being god! Such I thought the world was over. Guys, yeah. And and you're you're like everything has just collapsed on me and. Mm-hmm probably little by little you start to thaw out and you realize no this is like pushing me in a direction that i need to go and so you start writing songs and you start discovering all of this and it sounds like that was kind of the advent of Maggie Rose 2.0 that that, totally. that that's that's on the scene now and oh my god your new record is sick i mean thank you it it really it really is and i know that you First, you put out Change the Whole Thing, which I'm assuming was kind of the first big step in this new direction.
1: Yeah. I and- mean, there's a reason we, we picked that as the title track. One of the songs is called Change the Whole Thing, but for me, it was not just about the song, which is about you know leaving the world a little better than you found it, but it was also just about how it allowed me to totally pivot in the direction that I wanted to go in. Yeah. And it was completely live, too. So I feel like for the first time, even though I would made, you know, tons of EPs in an album, I hadn't really heard what I sound like recorded and that urgency and what my capabilities were. It was a good confidence booster.
0: Got you. And when you say it was live, you, it sounds to me like you're saying that the recording process was something very different than the regimented recording process that the country world has embraced and and for those of you yeah. listening who don't necessarily know what I mean recording music can take on a lot of different forms and mm-hmm. in worlds where music becomes more commercial oftentimes you take advantage of aspects of the studio that allow you to just kind of polish the music and i would argue polish a lot of the soul out of the music a lot of the time versus right. hitting record and like letting let, yeah, make it slick versus hitting record and letting two people, five people, whatever it is, express themselves and do yeah. what they've learned to do as individuals, as a group, and create real music in the moment. And it sounds like also right, all of a sudden... human element was yeah.
1: there again. Yeah. And, you know, it was very intentional. It was all of us on the album. At times, there were as many as 16 musicians in one tracking room we didn't have any isolation booths. Like there was all this really cool bleed. I have a seat was done um, with the vocals kind of as live as it could be. Cause I love that urgency and I love you know, hearing character and not comping the shit out of something, mm-hmm. which means that you're taking like 10 different takes for one line Yeah, and using like the best word from all those takes. Like that's not, that doesn't move me. Um, so I, borrowed a lot of what I learned on change the whole thing and applied it to have a seat but change the whole thing was me being almost annoyingly uh, live about it just so I could send the message that you know I'm changing the way I do things
0: well, like I said, huge success and it led you to this new record have a seat which as I've said is really an awesome record I think. Thank you, I first. think I think for your consideration is my is my main jam on this one. I had that one All on, right. on repeat this morning. But there are a lot of great songs and I want to talk about how this record came to be. So one of the interesting things here is that you recorded this at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, which for those of you who aren't aware this is Probably this is among the top five most famous recording studios in the world. We're talking Edda James, Aretha Franklin. You know, this is the studio where Dwayne Allman set up shop outside and yeah. was like the session guy. And then you've got current day artists like, you know, Isabel, Alicia Keys, who have done mm-hmm. records. There's an amazing there's multiple amazing documentaries about this place that is just legendary and revered to have this mojo that exists there in this Mojo's a good
1: word in
0: this weird kind of swampy northwestern corner of Alabama. I mean, this is such a such a unique place. What is it like working at Fame Studios and what do you feel like the place brought to this project?
1: So much. As just as you described that place, I'm beaming from ear to ear. It really it summoned me. You know what I mean? Like the best Musicians have made music there. And it felt like once I committed to making my record there, I was like, okay, it's on. The bar is here. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do my best to try and meet that. And I had a great producer, Ben Tanner, who is from Florence, Alabama, and was part from of the Alabama Shakes. shakes. Yeah. yeah. And he's just fantastic. I love working with him. And he knew that room so well. Um, but I, I think it's just that... That magic, that mojo you're describing—you know—who's gone before you—and you're like, okay, I'm not gonna screw this up. And it looks exactly as it did, you know, from those photos and videos of Aretha and Etta and Otis and you know, Wilson Pickett and all these people making yeah. music in there. So there's something very spiritual that that pulls you in. And I also loved the, how singular the focus was for that experience for me getting a few hours outside Nashville where there's just an abundance of amazing studios here. And I wanted to go there and, and try and absorb some of that magic and, and use all these great musicians and just make it only about this recording process and, and being in the sanctity of this place. Um, and I also feel like I had built this body of work that that deserved to be recorded at Fame. I was like, okay, this is this is this was heavily influenced by my decision. I'd written some of the songs, then I decided to re- record at Fame, and it was so crazy how, just subliminally, I would take that into the writing room as I finished out the rest of the material oh, and cool. how it influenced those songs.
0: Cool, cool, so before you even got there, you knew you had your sights set on Fame, and yes. the mojo came to you before you even hit the studio.
1: Yes. I think that that was just always something that, you know, even if I wasn't conscious about like, you know, this has got fame feels and, or this beat is a vibe that is similar to records that I love that were made there. It would end up just manifesting itself in the song in the way that they ended up sounding.
0: Yeah. Well, the performances reflect that and they really sound just stepped up and... They sound, you know, it's that interesting thing of, of course there's a pressure in music and there's a pressure to perform. And people ask all the time about, you know, do you get nervous? And you've got to learn to channel those things into right. something meaningful. And you've got, you've got a great example of that here. You've got a place with more history than probably any other recording studio. You know you're going to be there long before you even hit the studio. And it sounds right. like you channeled that into yes. something meaningful.
1: It was nice to kind of have that focal point. And I don't anticipate that, you know, every future album I'm gonna make will have that same sort of beacon that uh I'll be striving to to hit. Um and, it, and it's cool to just have this be a record that was heavily influenced sonically just by the place that I recorded it at.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cool. It sounds, it's a real moment for you and I can tell, and, and I've loved listening to this record and there's a theme on this record. I feel like there's a, there's a theme in the songs and, and even the title have a seat. I read in in an interview that you said something like, you know, this is who I am. Only I can occupy this seat. And especially after hearing your origin story and everything that you've been through. It seems like that was kind of the the guiding vision or at least a strong vision around the songwriting was this theme of understanding kind of who you are and being authentically you. Would you say that's that's kind of one of the the big themes of this so. record. Okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think this the title have a seat hits a few points for me that being a very big one um and this feeling of arrival too like this is the table that i've been setting for years and years and years and i'm going to finally sit down at it and you know we can all scooch over and make room for someone who wants to be here who wants to make valid contributions and that is not just in the music industry but also about inclusivity in our daily lives i was disgusted with the way that people were talking to each other or not talking to each other at all over you know, the last... Well, really since 2016, since 45 got into office and mm. just seemed like the world was on fire. And then all these songs, Chris, were written before the pandemic.
0: I read and that. And
1: it was crazy how those themes that were already... topics I really wanted to write about ended up becoming songs that I actually fell deeper in love with because they just took on a new meaning and they evolved as I think all songs should. Um, But for a while, you know, I had it all ready to go. It wasn't mastered, but it was done. And I had Mm -hmm. a full touring calendar ready to go so I could promote the eventual release of this album. The pandemic arrived and I couldn't listen to this music for like three months. It was oh, wow. hard for me to even listen to. And then, you know, I have a really wonderful radio team, a, a lot of all of them, women, actually, soundly music. And that's who I was on a panel with last night, talking about like, all this stuff that we got through together. And they even resequenced the songs and were like, listen to it in this order. And maybe we can just tweak this mix a little bit. Let's look at this as an opportunity. So it felt like I got to fall in love with that record all over again.
0: So do you feel like you, sorry to interrupt, but I'm just curious. Do you feel like you couldn't listen to it because you were just kind of heartbroken that you couldn't get this thing out to the, okay. Couldn't get this thing out to the world. You had this great record in the can, pandemic hits, and you're just like, oh my God.
1: Right. Well, and it was about gathering. Have a seat at the table. Let's all get together. And I feel, and I know that you probably feel this way too. Like a song doesn't really exist until you can give it away. And I need to do that through live performing. I mean, that's just such an important part of the whole process for me, especially as an independent artist. They are, the audience is my A&R team. They are the ones who help me select what ends up on a record. And I didn't have that tool. And, um, you know, eventually things started to, we saw a glimmer of hope. And I realized I just had to commit and as an artist move on to the next project. And it ended up being one of my favorite chapters thus far, like how we got to put it out and it was when people were sort of coming back together. It was the most tumultuous touring, the most chaotic <laughs> tour I've ever been on. Uh, but I, I know that it's only going to get easier, I hope. Um, and my appreciation for everything is just skyrocketed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, couldn't agree more. I love what you said about how a song doesn't really exist until it gets out there. And I was so moved. You know, we were we were at the Grammys a few weeks ago and John Batiste when he won for We mm. Are, which I think he was God, really that cons- was the
1: best speech.
0: Oh, it was the best speech. And the thing he said about how a song has a radar and, it, you know, it's not there's no best song. There's no best artist. It's just it's just this one-to-one between the artist and the song, that person, it finds the person who needs the song, you know? And yeah. even for us artists, you know, we, we try not to put too much stock in how things are received and how that informs, you know, how we feel about ourselves or however you want to say that. But the reality is we make this music so that it can go affect people in right. in a certain way. And And until that you know, the music starts to have that life out there on its own and finding those people and using that radar, you're sort of like your purpose as an artist, all this time and energy that you put into your career, it's kind of sitting dormant. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a challenge, but I, like I said, I, I just think this record is, is awesome. And I love the, the thematic elements of it. And I also just love, you crush it on the vocals, I mean it's <laughs> like awesome. there's there, um I love this song, "Do it," and yeah. <laughs> just like the vocals just got like some real real vibe.
1: Say what I wanna say, live how I wanna live, be who I wanna be, and love who I'm gonna love. Show 'em what I made of Ain't nothing to it, gotta do it, do it, do it, come
0: uh. So you're in the studio, you're at fame, and you're like getting ready to hit record on a thing like that. Like what is that what does that feel like? I mean, can you what? Is that the moment where you really feel the energy of the place rising up and taking your music to the next level? I mean, it's got to be pretty intense.
1: Yes. Yeah. that Fame heavily assisted all the songs with that one in particular. I mean, I feel like I it was one that. of the first first ones that we cut, too. Um, so we just all were like raring to go. And what a stellar band, too. I mean, I had some great players, Sarah Tomek on drums. Um, she just dug in on that song and the tempo and just had Aretha mm. on my brain. And um, I think it's it speaks to the confidence too. I feel like I use this term a lot and it sounds a little trite, but just being unapologetic. That is what that song is about. I don't care if I come off as a little cocky or I don't care if I come off as a little bossy in that song. And that was maybe one of the first times that I really felt like, you know this is like a this is me just stepping into that and being okay yeah. with it because a lot of people who've been in this vocal booth have been able to do that and inspire me and um, I knew that I had all these people around me supporting me, and the the vibes were just right, the atmosphere was exactly where it needed to be for that song,
0: yeah, yeah it and we didn't have this really cloud of
1: covid over our heads either. this was like the most collaborative like sweaty session we're all like in the room together and exchanging ideas and when i was falling back in love with this album i thought about just that energy especially on that song um of just like this excitement and people coming together to make music and just throwing out ideas on the fly there was a lot of brilliance that just happened like as it was going by yeah and it's just cool to witness and and be a part of that and it got me really excited about the opportunity to do that again.
0: I love it. Speaking of the collaboration between the people that you had involved in this album, tell me a little bit more about Ben Tanner and his contribution to things cuz I think that's such an interesting thing and I do some work as a producer mostly in in sort of our musical world and we the String Dusters produce our own stuff and this idea of producing is so fascinating and a great producer can bring a lot of very intangible things to a project. How would you describe Mm -hmm. Ben's contribution to have a seat?
1: Well, his demeanor is just like extremely peaceful, chill. There's not like, he does not exude a lot of ego. He's very receptive to everybody's ideas. You know, he, he makes you feel as if you have all of his attention when you're, sharing an idea with him or a suggestion. But also, like, his relationship with me before we ever recorded a note of music was pretty tight. I was going down to Muscle Shoals pretty regularly and spending a whole day just listening to Contenders with him. So he was listening to all sorts of work tapes and sketches and song ideas that I had and helping me select these songs. So it was very cool to have him be so involved with the A&R process and just talking ideas like who do we want on on these songs and, you know, I love this batch, but this might be another album and uh, it was a lot of songs <laughs> that we listened to and we didn't, I just felt very relaxed about the whole experience leading up to those awesome sessions that we had. And we did the record in increments, but, you know, first time working with him Legendary studio, sort of a different step further in that direction of uh, music that I wanted to go in. There were a lot of reasons to be nervous, and I think that he was a huge reason that I I wasn't, and that I was feeling really confident when those sessions arrived.
0: Vibe setter.
1: Yeah, about the material and who I had in the room and about my abilities to pull these off. Yeah. And be convincing.
0: Very cool. We'll get right back to my interview with Maggie after this very short break. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic it is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening.
1: Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny
0: streaming everywhere now.
1: It's okay if we disagree.
0: Tell us a little bit more about your writing process. So before any of this is going down and when Maggie's talking about contenders and going through contenders with Ben, you know, your, your demos, your songs, your, your Mm -hmm. ideas. Take us back before that. What is writing music like for you?
1: It's a constant process. I think it's just always something that is lingering. Like you need to be receptive to ideas when they arise and not expect Mm -hmm. that. Okay. I have a writing session today at 11. I'll get in the room and come up with something. I think you just need to, Like, my favorite songwriters are typically just extremely observant people who know to say, okay, I'm going to remember this experience and and try and articulate it in a song. Um, So I think just making lots of notes all the time. I have countless voice memos in my phone. <laughs> i knew you were I, gonna
0: say that everyone I, says that i love it
1: well thank god right i mean yeah that, the uh, technology is not all bad and it's nice to have this little recorder in your oh, pocket at any given moment and i've had 3 a.m ideas that were actually really good that i knew if i didn't record right now i would not remember them in the morning i've made that mistake and it really sucks and it Hersy so are you feelings. talking?
0: Are you talking mostly vocal ideas or more like musical ideas, melodies, things like that?
1: Melodies. A lot of my voice memos are just like, blah blah blah. Melodies. I have oh, okay. a ton of. Um, I have a ton of like poems that I have written though, and I will try and see which ones can be, you know, congruous and work together. Um, I also think taking guitar lessons again as like a fully formed adult has been one of the best things I could do for my writing because you understand theory and you know that okay maybe I'm just gonna use a CGD progression and that's fine and that's what serves the song but now I know that like I'm intentionally uh, rejecting the other options that were there for me, sure. and you know you're such a great musician. You, you. I've always been a good singer. I mean, I've always enjoyed singing, but it's nice to have like all these extra tools now and be able to just weird up my songs and know that I have the option to do that. And those yeah. will open passages uh, lyrically for me too. That and and playing songs on a piano versus a guitar. If I ever feel like I'm kind of at an impasse, I'll just go change my position. I'll sit at the piano, and then all of a sudden, that voicing just will open up uh, different options for me.
0: Yeah, I feel you on that. I always say that's the best thing that ever came out of music school for me was not that my writing would necessarily be more complex, but just that I would have an understanding of what all the options were out there. Right, Because sometimes when you don't, you might get tricked into thinking that what you're creating is overly simple. Whereas when you know that, you know, you can like go to a flat six chord for this magical sound or, Mm -hmm. you know, all the dominant like hard edgy sounds. When you know what's out there, it just gives you a little bit more confidence in terms of landing on something and right. it being the right thing for this song you know what i and mean and
1: ownership of your yeah. music and the decisions that you're ma- all the decisions you're making within it um you know i feel like it probably is also just a product of getting older but i don't feel like a passenger in in my music or my career at all and yeah. i do think that there were times where I was being just deferential because I probably should have been because I was with people who really knew what they were talking about. Um, And I love collaborating too. I think that, like you said earlier at the very beginning, doing this podcast um, and doing my podcast has made me such a better musician because I spend a lot of time listening to other people. And like any musician worth a shit has to be doing a lot of listening. Um, So it's nice to have people to bounce ideas off of and live in a town where I'm surrounded by really talented musicians.
0: You nailed that segue, Maggie, Mm. to the podcast. Oh, I did. Oh, look at us. See, (laughs) we're such pros. uh, (laughs) We're texting on the side. Um, Oh, my God. (laughs) I love your podcast. I've listened to a few episodes now and quick shout out to Osiris media. We were both in part of the Osiris whoop family whoop. and, um, I've actually known RJ from like the very beginning of Osiris really was working oh, with him. Yes. Yeah, he's the best was working with RJ before I even had a podcast and he, um, RJ's wife, Rachel and I went to college together. So that's, that's how oh, I awesome. Him. And, uh, I'm a big believer and a big fan. I think that what he's doing is great, and they've been such a big part of you know getting inside the musician's brain out there. And salute the Songbird, of course, part of the Osiris family, and really a great concept and some great episodes out there. Jen Hartswick, Martina McBride, I think you just had Allison Russell on, and mm-hmm. Sierra Hull, Valerie June, Brandy Carlisle, like really amazing long list of. Amazing female artists who. I would love have- to
1: get Brandi Carlile. Gotta help me with that.
0: Wasn't is it? Wasn't she on a, a? Didn't I see her name on a recent episode or something that you guys co-branded? Maybe.
1: No, but we're putting that out there. Oh yeah, she did. I'm sorry, she did Biscuits and Jam, um, an episode. And we did a we did a cross promotion and featured it.
0: Okay. Okay. That's... But I gotta
1: get her on on Sleet the Songbird, so we're just putting that out there. Okay, right now. we're putting that Which, out thank there. Thank you right for now. doing I did I texted <laughs> you and you just got my text. To, to that.
0: <laughs> we're killing it in the back channels here. But I wanna know I wanna know you mentioned a second ago that it's been an awesome part of your career and I feel you on that. I love just nerding out with my musician friends and learning yeah. what goes into their music and what the challenges are and what successes are. And it's, it's really helped me just, yeah, to to kind of think more deeply about what I do and take it in the direction that I want to go. take us inside the vision and the advent for this podcast. What inspired you to get Salute the Songbird going?
1: Well, I was actually called upon by Kirsten Cluthy, who's my head producer of the show. And she's, Part of the Osiris family, I had been on RJ's podcast, Past Present Future Live, mm-hmm. and we just totally hit it off. I absolutely loved him. It was such a great conversation, and that put me on their radar. And they needed more female um, author, more female hosts. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think it's as much about gender. It's just about the fact that. No, everything else includes men, but I am an expert of being a woman in the music (laughs) industry. And I was like, let's just focus on our strengths. And I felt so, I was just longing for that camaraderie that I wasn't getting anymore because of the pandemic. Like, I just realized how much I really thrive when I'm in a community where I'm seeing my peers often and in a live setting and... It's my study in musicianship. You know, I go out to live music every week living in Nashville, and I think that's how you get better, and that's how you show for support. Sure. And and I think admiration for your fellow musician is, is really healthy. So I just started letting people know on Instagram how I felt about them because I was like, I'm sure they feel shitty and isolated like I do. I'm just going to slide into their DMs and tell them how much – I appreciate what they're doing. And that's how we got a lot of guests on initially. And, you know, Nancy Wilson was from heart was a tour mate. She had me out on tour with her and her sister and Joan Jett. She was one of the first big names I got. And it was nice to be really scared and challenged in a time where I felt like a lot of those opportunities to get nervous and scared on stage were gone. Um, and the research process was so fun, and I feel right. just like this deep connection to anyone who's out there making music and or or putting themselves in the vulnerable position of trying to connect with an audience using their own life experiences and like i I just interviewed Melissa Etheridge, and she's one of the first rock artist that I ever covered when I was a teenager kind of taught me how to sing and be a badass and have a gravelly voice and it's okay and getting to talk to her it's just like these full circle moments because yeah. of that podcast are pretty surreal
0: yeah it's really cool congrats and
1: thank you and you too I mean and I just like I love the format of two musicians talking to each other and sometimes it's gnarly and it goes into places where, you know, people are talking about motherhood or not being able to have kids or being sexually harassed on a radio tour or like heavy shit
0: that like needs to come out.
1: Any woman in the industry has dealt with one incident that has, that, that has been due to them being a woman. I mean, it's just how it is. And I think things are getting better. I'm encouraged, but we're not there yet so these conversations are going to keep happening.
0: Now you did a panel yesterday called Claiming the mm-hmm. Seat and that was focused on women in the music industry, correct?
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And what were you guys talking about? I'm curious. Take us inside. And you just mentioned some of the kind of more obvious challenges facing women and, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's very easy to say that the music world can be perceived as a dude's world. I mean, it's just that, yeah. that that's just a reality just by the numbers. So what, what were you guys talking about yesterday and, and what are some of those challenges?
1: Well, yesterday was a really kind of triumphant moment because it was my team. Uh, soundly cool. They're all comprised of women. That's been the team that has been promoting all my music at radio mm-hmm. helping me with distribution and playlisting and all of that. And I've had lots of teams around me as we've sort of gone through. Mm -hmm. Um, Major labels, uh, big tough radio guys who are the ones making the deals with the radio programmers. And this is just an entirely different type of vibe of uh, cast of characters that I feel like they are listening to every song I send them. They're thinking of colors when they hear a certain song and you know the branding and you know, they're showing up at the festivals that I'm playing, like Newport Folk Fest. I had them all there and it was like this big celebration because they want to see me in that lane that they know I belong in and they, just as and much they, as anyone else.
0: And they, take, they, they make an effort to understand you, it sounds like, on a deeper level. Than absolutely, past partners have okay, yeah, that's the best, I mean, it's just so and meaningful I know that as it's because
1: artist. absolutely, and I know that it's because they know they can relate to a lot of the challenges that I've faced throughout my career. um I think they're really happy that some of those challenges put me in front of them and on their team eventually, but you know they also know how hard I have worked and Mm -hmm. and some of the things that i've seen um and had to just overcome to get here Um, i've had a lot of fun too but i think it just makes them deeply empathic with what i'm going through um because they are women and i've worked with some absolutely stellar men and i work with them you know i'm managed by my husband and and narval blackstock which is pretty awesome as well whole different i don't recommend it for everybody but it works for us Um, but we talked about a lot of the the audience was all women and they're all trying to get their foot in the door and we were just saying like you know even those quiet moments are really valuable yes today was a busy day and you know we had a lot of exciting stuff going on but don't think that those days when you're just Asking those questions that are so important of yourself, like, you know, who do you want to be? What do you think is cool? What do you want to do? Those are just as valuable as the days where you're in front of the camera or you know, on that huge stage, I think. You know, oh, or is there sure. is not that one moment that ordains you and makes you a success. I think it's just, you know, a, a continuing effort that you have to just stick with.
0: Do you feel like things are getting better on this front? Have you... Noticed an evolution in the years that you've been in the business.
1: Yes, I, I do. I think that I think that uh, people are calling a spade a spade a little bit more readily than they were. Um, I think that you know there are a lot of people who are perceiving themselves in a more truthful way and making and reckoning with that. And I think that that's pretty cool to see. Uh, you know, I know that there's some industry executives in Nashville that are kind of beyond redemption, in my opinion. <laughs> but I think that those are few and far between. Yeah. I feel like everyone's kind of getting on the right foot. Well, um, how, how
0: enlightening. I think you're right. And, of course, I'm not going to notice as many of these things as you are. But that story that you told at the beginning, salad gate, whatever that asshole radio oh my buyer God. was. I mean, when you think about that- I talked that, to him
1: on the phone that day, the article came out too.
0: Oh my God, what'd you say? And
1: I was just like, what were you thinking? I want to understand as a woman releasing music to radio, you all let me like come on these radio tours and buy you dinners and all this shit, like so expensive. And we never had a chance. Is that what, is that what I'm understanding now? And he was, I felt kind of bad for him because he was like, I'm just stating the facts. Like I got, I'm getting crucified for calling out what is happening here at radio. I used a shitty analogy. You know, There wasn't a whole lot of remorse either, I will say. But at least he had the guts to get on the phone with me and let me kind of ream him out. Um, I, I give him credit for that. But God, it was I give I, you, I give furious. you credit.
0: I give you credit for calling him out like that. That's well, that's <laughs> good for you. A
1: lot of people called him out but didn't have an actual conversation with him as a one-ended uh, right. conversation and you know he was just kind of like these are the stats. This is the radio that you're dealing with. Maybe I did everyone a favor by putting my foot in my mouth and making this analogy. Yeah, And yeah. it's it hasn't really changed with country radio, but I know that a lot of women who were just getting in line to subject themselves to that format have looked elsewhere and are making better music for it, and I feel like I'm one of them.
0: Well, and of course, huge thanks to you for just sticking up for yourself. Oh, my God. And one of the most fascinating things about that story is not what he said. It's that he <laughs> had... The balls to say it and what does that tell you about the environment that he's operating in exactly to, to me is sort of indicative of the fact that okay here's a person who might actually have the power and the platform to do something about this and he just talks about it like it's the situation that he was handed i he mean just, like it's the salad the he's eating that's yeah. right
1: <laughs> it was crazy
0: and just we looking like, at it like these oh but but these are the facts instead of being empowered, having some foresight, having some vision and saying, okay, this is something that I am actually going to do something about. It's just like the complacency around that. And that, you know, you feel that starting to change these days and you feel the pendulum swinging. And of course, like me too. And, and, you know, not not without its own kind of shortcomings, but the general idea of what's happening here is a, a recognition that, you know, we we haven't all been equal, and there needs right. to. Be, and we can't. It's we can't just expect these problems to correct themselves. Even if there are people out there working with best intentions, it's almost like an effort needs to go right. into this. You well, know? this was
1: back in 2015. We weren't even talking about you know, Black Indigenous people of color at country radio yet. That was like,
0: right? That's a whole. Other oh, we'll ball get of to ours. that when you know. <laughs>
1: just like it's just, I I think. I, I am optimistic like the simplest way to answer your question about that i think at least people will know um they're going to know more where other people stand if there are you an ally or not i think that there's going to be more clarity in that regard and people will be able to use that information um and, and do with it what they want. Before, it, we were all living in the bless your heart kind of yeah. veiled reality. And it just feels like people who are going to make a difference are, are going to be more vocal about it, and that's okay. I was always discouraged from being vocal about anything remotely politically oriented when yeah. I was in country music too.
0: Well, I know I probably speak for a lot of people when I just say thank you for speaking your mind and stepping up for what you believe in and being part of you know it's a work in progress but these are things that really need to happen and if we're not doing anything about the reality that there are huge challenges facing women in the music world and not just the music world many different worlds you know we're kidding ourselves and it's huge to have badass ladies like you leading the charge, you know, leading by example, doing your own thing, not only with your music, but also with your voice and really... Hey, music fans. We wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th, At the base of Akemo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com for more info and to get tickets. That's music on the MTN.com. Hope you enjoy.